Hello. This is Everything's Political, and I'm your host, Junius Williams. We're here at a very auspicious occasion this time. This would be, I guess you call a pop-up podcast, because we usually come on the uh, end of the month, the last Wednesday of each month. But things are so vibrant, things are changing so much that we have to come on now. Now, you know, as we do on Everything's Political, we try to look at the underside of politics, the things that are less discussed, not often discussed, certainly not as much analyzed, because if you look at it, we could wear this thing to death. Everything is political, but we don't have to do that today because we got folks trying to take over America. So obviously we have to talk about that. But the intention was to talk about what will the new president do? We're timing this to come out on the 18th. Those of you who are listening to us on the 18th of January will get a few minutes to think about that because the president is going to give his inaugural address on the 20th. So we're going to see what he has to say. But I have two very important people with me to give you our idea of what you can expect, the questions you can ask, and where you think you might want to go with President Biden and his worthy Vice President Harris. So the first person I want to introduce is Dr. Chris, who is a public health physician and health equity champion. She is a fellow at the American College of Preventative Medicine. The other guest is Dr. Eddie Glaude, who is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University and the author of many books. Most recently, one that I enjoy it's called Begin Again, and it's an examination of the life of the writer and public thinker, James Baldwin. So welcome, folks. It's my pleasure. Good to be here. We're going to just have a conversation, just going to have a nice conversation the way home folks do. So let's start off with something that I, I got from Reverend William Barber and the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign. And this is something they said, which I thought was apropos for this moment, talking about the attempted takeover of Congress. This did not just happen. For years, extremist politicians who call themselves Republicans have sown the winds of division and lies. Now the country is reaping the whirlwind of chaos. We call on our lawmakers and justice system to hold President Trump, the senators, the congresspersons, and all elected and appointed officials who had a role in these heinous attacks accountable for their actions, swiftly and to the full extent of the law. Do you think President Biden is going to do that? You know, I'm not sure. I pray that he does. But, you know, we've already heard language of turning the page of the demand for unity and reconciliation and the like. And if our history is any indication, we tend to, uh, in these moments, only go so far. 
we take it only so far, you know. So, you know, I keep telling people if it wasn't for President Lincoln's assassination, the South would have been reintegrated into the Union with basically hardly any penalty. They would just have to declare a sense of loyalty. Radical Reconstruction wouldn't have happened if he wasn't murdered. There's a sense in which uh, you think about the violence of the mid-20th century, all of those bodies that are at the bottom of the Mississippi River, for example, and who's been held to account, and has the region been held to account. So our history suggests and it has something to do, I think, with the fact that, you know, I keep saying to friends of mine that uh, people are ambivalent because these are their uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters and nephews and neighbors and fathers and mothers, that there's an intimacy here, even though there may be a disagreement, there's an intimacy here that um, complicates matters. So I'm, I'm not sure what President Biden will do because he he knows he has the challenge of trying to unify the country. So. I can't say for sure. Yeah, I, I find myself in a similar position because I don't know if it's going to come from a political actor, the rejection of the myth of America. Um, there's a great mythology that surrounds this nation. And oftentimes that is um, referenced or framed as the idolism of America. But what we need is a total disruption of that myth because otherwise we're stuck on that pendulum. Right. So we've been on a pendulum in this nation's history of progress and regression. We've never gotten to transformation. And in order for us to get to transformation, we have to confront. Right. I hear a lot of talking about unity or even talking about healing and healing can't come without truth and reconciliation. And it goes to what the professor was saying. That truth is bitter and inconvenient because of the intimacy that folks have with the, the perpetrators um, of desecrating the hallowed ground that we stand on. That ground is hallowed because of the bloodshed, right? And so I'm vigilant. I'm forever hopeful because that's just my nature. But the pressure has to remain on the incoming administration to do more than turn the page. This is not who we are. How many times have we heard that? This is not who we are. But in fact, this is who we are for reasons that you both stated. How, how about the Congress? Do you think they're going to do something? You know, I'm not sure again. You know, I think in so many ways we've witnessed the kind of splintering of the two-party system. People talk about it being three parties now with what's happened in the Republican Party. But there is a kind of fracture within the Democratic Party as well, you know, when we think about quote unquote, its left wing, the progressive wing of the party. And so there are elements within the Congress who want to hold those congresspersons uh, who challenged the election based upon lies, who in some ways incited the mob, this, these insurrectionists. Uh, they want to hold them as being participants in this, this, these acts of sedition. And then there are others who are already clamoring, and we hear, we hear it from that other information stream, Fox News. They're clamoring that, you know, if the country proceeds to prosecute those who engaged in these acts, if they exhibit uh, an effort uh, to hold these congresspersons accountable, they're going to deepen the animus, right? And what we need is to turn the temperature down. This is their argument. And so given the way, which, the way in which our politics uh, have taken shape over the last few years, Doc, I don't put anything past these folks, to be honest with you. 
I know that's a bit pessimistic, but I come out of a blues tradition, you know, who knows? What I would add to that is privilege affords you. And I just had this conversation yesterday um, talking about whether or not there should be a response to this across all sectors. Privilege affords you silence. Um, privilege affords you to be complicit and privilege affords you ambivalence. And so many of our elected officials operate from privilege, right? And showing them that privilege, my people, black and brown people, historically excluded people, we can't afford privilege and we can't afford to protect the status quo. And so again, I'm hopeful, but I'm not convinced. I need to be convinced that action will be taken because it's not so much around time. Um, I hear people uh, mentioning, well, you know, if the House votes to impeach, will the Senate take up a trial? Do we have time to do that um, before the incoming administration? Um, we need to suspend this false notion of time because there has to be consequence. And that consequence can't be compartmentalized into these next, what are we at, 10 days or, or, or so? Um, and so vigilant, but not convinced. And we must keep up the pressure. Power concedes nothing without a demand, even power vested in supposedly a more left or progressive interpretation. But how can President Biden expect to get anything done unless we do something about lawlessness? I mean, accountability. How can he expect to go? I mean, I look at this thing like the night of broken glass. Remember that crystal knock? Mm. And, you know, that was the first night of the large-scale assault on the Jewish presence in Germany uh, at that point. And from there, it went on down. I mean, Hitler became stronger after that because everybody said, well, we can't do this, we can't do that. If, if the president wants to be able to do anything, especially in this first 100 days, he is going to be able only if he faces the fact that there is a full-scale assault on America, the one that he thought he was buying into when he got elected. I agree. And I think um, even Governor Schwarzenegger, he, he, he spoke about this, right? He made that comparison of the night of broken glass and how this um, insurrection was uh, comparable to that night of broken glass. And if you hear him speak that narrative, right? If you hear him retell that story, he talks about the weight and the burden of silence um, and how that an inaction, let's broaden that, not just silence, but inaction, um, and how that was a swallowing fire in and of itself and how that damage was then inflicted upon the perpetrators of silence. And so our nation can never heal if we only remain in silence. So if you know, President-elect Biden doesn't come in with the resolve to do what's uncomfortable. And even at times, what's inconvenient, uh, this nation can't get to a point of healing because once again, you can't get to healing without going through truth and reconciliation. You might get to progress and you might get to progress um, defined from the perspective of, you know, protecting the status quo, but you won't get the transformation. So it's about what America do we want America to be? Absolutely. The scale of the problems that he faces, right, requires in some ways a response at scale. Right. So the country's broken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just, we're clear about that, right? I mean, he's going to enter office 
with over 400,000 dead, clearly. He's going to enter office where uh, trust, dis, you know, distrust is at its all-time high, where with a polity that is divided uh, and at each other's throats, he's going to enter office at a moment when the economy is in tatters, uh, enter office in a moment when there's a deep racial reckoning that's a part of a broader moral reckoning in the country. So he cannot come in cautious. The Biden-Harris administration must have a moral and political vision that's comparable to the scale of problems we face. But if you're facing systemic shutdown and you're tinkering with toes, something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong. You can't come in tinkering with toes and there's a systemic shutdown. So, so I think it's important for him to understand that these forces that attack the Capitol are forces that are clear, that they believe this country only belongs to white people. That what's at the heart of it is that black voters, brown voters, young voters, women, minority voters made their voices known, and these folk don't like it because to them only white voters matter. And so to the extent that's true, moving forward, he's going to have to address that. We're going to have to uproot that finally if we're going to move forward substantively. And if we're going to address the scale of the problems we face as a nation, it seems to me. This this is a few words from David Brooks writing uh, as a columnist in the New York Times. And the title of his article is, We Just Saw How Minds Aren't Changed. This is before the takeover. Let me read a little bit here. We just ended the year that broke the truth. It was one year when millions of Americans and not just your political opponents, seemed impervious to evidence, willing to believe the most outlandish things if it suited their biases, and eager to develop furtive animosities based on crude stereotypes. Worse, it was a year that called into question the very processes by which our society supposedly makes progress so many of our hopes are based on the idea that the key to change is education. We can teach each other to be more informed and make better decisions. We can study social injustices and change our behavior to fight them. But 2020 was the year that showed that our models for how we change minds or change behavior are deeply flawed. I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I would I would agree in um, many ways because as you were reading that, what immediately came to mind for me is when you have been so long drunk off of the wine of mythology, when you have been so long fat off of false idealism, truth is incompatible with your palate. So we swayed so far from the principles of truth, the principles of evidence. And I can say that as a public health physician, right? Um, the, the fact that we have had a full on assault on public health science, um, where we have people questioning fundamental public health guidance and measures um, is because for too long, we have afforded people um, the privilege of saying, oh, you know, this is not America, right? What you see is not what you see. Um, gaslighting has gone on so long in this nation. And it, when you feed the public via gaslighting, whether it is with a good intention or a false intention, right? When you feed the public via gaslighting, this is what you reap. You, you reap a level of rottenness. 
if I could borrow from the professor, you're going to need a little bit more than a scalpel, right? You're going to have to have some amputation. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. And, you know, I don't know if we could salvage the limb. Um, and it, it's about we need to go into building something new, something different. And so in, in that sense, yeah, I, I do agree with what he said, but I, I want to push I want to push the dialogue further. I really want us to challenge the very notion of which our systems are built upon because those notions were never inclusive to begin with. So let's stay with health there for a while. You had a, a very nice analogy and, you know, we're in, in, in deep trouble, you know, better than we do, that something audacious has to happen to take care of this COVID thing. Let's say this. We know the president is conscious of that. What, in your opinion, Chris, does he have to do? He cannot separate um, the public health pandemic that we're experiencing from endemic systemic racism, because the pandemic that we are experiencing um, is has been accelerated because of racism. Um, I just had a talk on, on, on this yesterday with some colleagues, and I was talking about the collision of two pandemics, right, just to play on that that word um, and to say there is a fast pandemic and a slow pandemic. This fast pandemic is this novel coronavirus, which has ripped through the globe um, in a little bit over a year and has left a staggering toll of death, mortality, morbidity, and economic devastation and an up upending of our social fabric, right? Um, and then you have this slow, insidious pandemic, um, systemic racism um, that we have winked at at times. Um, waved at at other times, and because we've never really handled it, grappled with it, and uprooted it, racism seeks an opportunity by which to achieve what the system was designed to achieve. And so that's why you have, of the 370,000 plus Americans who are died, have died, that's why you have a disproportionate burden on black and brown lives. That needs to be at the center of every conversation. If I ever talk about coronavirus, I'm gonna tell you that indigenous Americans and black Americans, if their mortality exceeds one in 750, I'm gonna talk about mm. what's happening um, to Latinos. Um, and I'm gonna talk about how case rates, how hospitalization rates, how mortality is all disproportionately borne on the backs of black and brown folks. So if we're going to talk about solutioning around the coronavirus pandemic, and a lot of that right now is focusing on the vaccine, right? We have to talk about first, how do we solve um, issues of equity? Or how are we getting those who have borne disproportionate burdens access to solutions? So he, he can't divorce the two. Equity has racial equity, health justice, um, economic equity. It all has to be interwoven in his design to beat back the pandemic, right? So the last thing I'll say before passing the baton, we're going far too slow through the distribution of vaccines. Um, you know, the allocation schema of what this is the priority population, we're, we're exhausted 1A, we're, we're, we're dipping into 1B, starting to talk about um, some essential workers. Today, the, the current administration said that this next group is going to be 65 and older instead of 75 and older. Look, people are are, are various points along the decision journey. Get the vaccine to those who are ready to be vaccinated. And that, that's more of an equity argument, right? Because I do this every day, having conversations, whether I'm having conversations in small group settings with workers, or whether I'm having conversation across a webinar. And that's what I would say first and foremost to, 
to, to the incoming president and his entire administration. You can't solve coronavirus without solving how coronavirus has decimated black and brown communities. Dr. Barbara Ransby echoes what you're saying on another level. She says, Biden talks a lot about the middle class and then segues to middle-of-the-road solutions to grave economic realities. Uh, Here's an example. More than 20 million jobs were lost because of COVID-19. Many will not come back without some kind of government intervention. The government's disinvestment in services and infrastructure has affected all low-income, under-resourced communities, but communities of color have taken a disproportionate hit. That hit occurred before Mm COVID-19 and has been exacerbated by that. Dr. Eddie? Absolutely. COVID-19 is like, you know, shooting blue dye in the body. You see all the sicknesses are just healed. It metastasized, right, in the fissures of the society, right? So, the people who've disproportionately borne the brunt of the virus are not just simply black and brown people, but poor black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Right? Those who are those who are most subject to the failings of our society. Because what have we done over the last 40 years? We have shredded the social safety net. So what is what has been revealed is not, you know, and I agree with Dr. Chris wholeheartedly, the deep you know, racial inequities built into this, our healthcare system, but it also has revealed, in addition to that, how broken the healthcare system is in this society. The U.S. is spending more money in response to COVID-19 than any of the industrialized countries in the world. Why? Because we don't have a damn social safety net. So we didn't have in place the very things to protect Americans. And we have to ask ourselves reasons, what are the reasons why We've seen an erosion of the social safety net that came out of the great society, that came out of the New Deal. It had everything to do with it being perceived as disproportionately benefiting black and brown people, right? Being a result of the redistribution of resources from those folk who work hard and earn what they have to those folk who are lazy and who just want to have a handout. We know what we've experienced over the last 40 years is a wholesale attack on any notion of the public good. And it has evidenced itself in a complete evisceration of public institutions designed to ensure the well-being of our fellows. That's clear. And Black folk and brown folk and poor folk are born the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get, I hold the position that we need health care, guaranteed quality health care for everybody. Period. And whether you're going to get that with Obamacare tinkering around the edges, I'm not sure. But what I do know this is where Joe Biden as a candidate got it wrong. Nobody was saying that Medicare for all or would, would, would solve the coronavirus. No one was making that argument. People were saying that it would provide a kind of social safety net, which would give us a different point of attack in relation to coronavirus. We would be in a better position, right? It wasn't about resolving it or solving the, the pandemic. That wasn't the argument. So part of what we need as he as he goes into as they start their first hundred days, obviously we need a coordinated strategy. We need a national strategy to address this. That strategy has to do not only with testing; it has to do with getting needles in arms, vaccine in arms, particularly with regards to the most vulnerable folk. But we also have this moral dimension of the virus that I want to mention because I don't want to get into Dr. Chris's area. I, that's her stuff, right? But 
we're going to have an epidemic of grief. So you talk about the epidemic of, of the pandemic of corona and pandemic of racism. We got to deal with the grief. Folk ain't going home right. People can't say goodbye properly. Folk can't have uh, the wake to celebrate the life. So our rituals of grief have been broken. Close partner of mine, his wife's mother, passed right in East Orange. Haitian family. She's the oldest daughter, which if you're in the Haitian family, you know what that means. Oldest daughter had to make the decision that she couldn't come to her mother's funeral because she didn't want to jeopardize her children. Mm. So she had to say goodbye to her via a, a phone with the mask on her face. Can't grieve right. So not only are you going to have loss, loss is going to be tinged with regret. And so you're going to have folk move carrying that forward. So there's going to be a level of brokenness that attends our efforts. Right? Because if, you, if you're not able to say goodbye to your mama right, mm -hmm. or your daddy right. I have this conversation so frequently with my family and with others. I was just speaking with someone probably in the past three weeks about how we need a national mourning. We need to grieve for the souls of folk and the souls of folk who remain are part of those souls. Right. So imagine I'm working in one hospital and four miles away, my father is dying. And the, the fact that, you know, he had to die in, First of all, he was dying right at the peak of the, of, the, of the pandemic in New York and New Jersey. And so there was even little that we knew then um, in comparison to what we know now. We don't know it all, but it was so little that we knew then. And the fact that we couldn't celebrate my father's life the way that we had always imagined. My father came up from the Jim Crow South. He endured. That Black man deserved a proper celebration, right? My father um, worked at Bell Labs, but he started there cutting grass. My father mm. went to college. My father was cutting grass at Bell Labs, but he was always an intelligent, smart Black man who had to go through opportunity what it would be afforded him. And he always said, if I, if I could do it, I would have gone to college immediately. Um, his younger brother, there's some ages in the family, his younger brother went to MIT. Um, and he's like, I would have went to college, um, but I didn't have that opportunity. But I knew to go north. Um, I knew I had family in the Brooklyn area. Um, you know, I knew I could be an apprentice with the printing press. But then, you know, one thing led to another. And my father was so instructive of for my life, because here was a black man who achieved an opportunity that he should not have had access to and then fought. My father was at Bell Labs fighting for other black scientists to be employed and to be given the opportunity to, to ascend that research throne and ladder, right? So here, this man, this heroic black man had to die almost in anonymity because this country doesn't recognize the depth of the loss. Um, we have a current administration, I don't believe that has ever even flown the flag at half staff to say these are the, the souls of folks who have gone on. And we have to deal with that. And it says something about the value we place on life, the value we place on black life, on brown life, on poor life. It's so intertwined with a sense of class. It's so intertwined with a sense of um, racism. And this is why I say the pandemic is, is a course, is instructive. 
right? Because you got to talk about everything, talk about coronavirus, um, like the professor was just saying. And Dr. Cameron Jones, I think she says it best. She talks about the social determinants of equity. And those social determinants of equity are those forces, right? Those political forces are those social forces, those racial forces, those economic forces that impact the distribution of resources. And where resources are distributed is often attached to value. Value is derived from resources, right? Whether that resource is land, whether that resource is access to education, whether that resource is access to a a job with a livable wage, value is attached to that. Value. We have to challenge our value system because right now we're able to forget the weight and the burden of those who have died and those who remain. I remember last night, just uh, that recently, we were on the phone in a prayer visual for Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman. That's right. Who, mm-hmm. Because she was in that room at Congress with all those unmasked Republicans, she has come down with COVID. Uh, Eddie, you were talking about grieving. I mean, uh, that was real grieving. That was that was black grieving on the phone. They set it up for 100 people, and the people just couldn't even get in. And oh, when those preachers started praying, man, I'm telling you, something was moving in the room. Uh, it, it makes me realize more and more that, and let me just ask you in terms of a question as, as it, as it, uh, as it uh, pertains to our new president. Are we not the soul and the conscious of America? And does he realize that? He better. He know he, he didn't he didn't make it to the he didn't make it to the White House without us. No. He knows that. He know he know he said it explicitly. Um, you know, uh, when you see the the images of 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 all that mostly white mob sacking the Capitol, and you see images of black men and women cleaning up after them. Or you see the image of the police, the black police officers sitting there standing in front of that mob, just him alone, spies the Senate Senate doors slightly open and, and unprotected, and him alone decides, I got to make a decision and guides the mob in a different direction. Those are material representations of what our tradition stands for. We reveal the lie that's at the heart of the the American project. That's why they're always attacking our bodies all the time, you know, uh, that because when we show up, we reveal the contradiction that's at the heart of the country, right? But at the same time, you know, there's a reason why the blue note is so important to us, to our mm-hmm. cultural sound, right? We know what we've been through. We know who these people are and what this place is. But, you know, over the last 40 years, just to connect the arguments, there has been not only an evisceration of the public good, there's been a transformation of us, an attempt to transform us from human beings in community with others to self-interested persons only in pursuit of your own aims and ends in competition and rivalry with others. You see it in a Christian gospel. Let's call it prosperity gospel. You even see it in the way they expect you to grieve, that your grief is yours and yours alone. We don't share it with you. It's yours in the privacy of your. So with this level of death and carnage, it transformed the nation. That's what the Civil War was all about. Mm-hmm. 
when you see when you see the photos, you know, I don't mean that Civil War itself was about this, but when you look at all of the photo footage of 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 the of the death of the Civil War, those images transformed the nation. They became the backdrop, right, for reimagining for the second founding. We don't even see our day, except for through the spectacle of makeshift morgues, right? So what? We are the soul. You're right. So what President-elect Biden and, and Vice President-elect Harris will have to do, we talked about the scale of the problem. We can talk about it at the level of COVID-19. We can talk about it at the level of, of the economy. We can talk about it at the level of racial reckoning and police reform and all that. But there's a human dimension to this. That many of us will enter this January 20th broken, lonely, bearing the burden of grief. What does it mean to imagine ourselves being together under those conditions? Oh, I got a tradition that can give you some resources. I got a sound that can help you with some resources to imagine how to get through that darkness. Amen. And that's called the blues. Go ahead, Dr. Chris. Once you finish your thought there, let's go over into the economic to see what he has to do in these first 100 days. No, I, I was just gonna, um, gonna add to that the power of narrative. I've spoken a lot about doing this public health advocacy. You know, I've had people question me, what, like, what are my motives? I've had people question, oh, is she out for self? Um, because I recognize the importance of narrative. And when I say the importance of narrative, I'm talking about the collective narrative. And the professor was talking about detachment, he was talking about isolation, um, he was talking about individualism. What I regretted about the pandemic was the language of social distancing because it undermined social connectedness. Now, that's something we know in our community as Black folk, we know we have to remain connected if we going to remain alive. Mm -hmm. right? Like history has taught us that. And the need for understanding um, how connections can be thickened, and those connections being multi-layered, those connections being uh, spiritual, those connections being emotional, those connections being social, they don't only have to be physical. But if you don't see someone as human and you see them as other, it's difficult to fathom your level of connectivity, right? And so so hear me on this. In, it's the othering in our society through our systems, our systems other groups and populations. It is the othering in society. And it's also also what we see happening is the othering of grief, as if this is an American uh, story. And that's why we have to change the narrative. We have to force um, our issues to be American issues, right? Black folks' issues to be at the center of, of the dialogue, Black stories to be at the center of the dialogue, Black and brown lived experiences, poor lived experiences, gay lived experiences, the diaspora, the diversity it has to be at the center of the dialogue. Because if it's not at the center of the dialogue, then there is an intentionality around policy action or policy implementation. So I just resonate on that sense of of connection and what can we do? What can political actors do to enforce a sense of we, we're stuck in uh, American exceptionalism? We need to um, learn American collectivism. Mm. And I, and this this pandemic has taught us this. If I could just go back to Dr. Cameron Jones, I love um, her definition of racism. She you know she defines racism as a system whereby one group of people are advantaged 
based on phenotype and the social construct of race. Another group of people are disadvantaged both based on the phenotype and social construct of race, but by which the strength of society is sapped as a whole. We don't measure the costs of racism. We don't measure the costs in, in total societal costs. We don't measure the cost of grief. We don't measure the cost of economic disenfranchisement of certain communities because we don't measure the total societal cost. And a part of the narrative, and I would this is what the president-elect can do, is to change that and to weave my story. My story about my father losing his life, about my sister, a breast cancer survivor being a long hauler, Kim Maria Walker, about my cousin, an essential worker, a postal worker right here in North New Jersey, dying and losing his life to coronavirus. I've lost three family members to coronavirus, four actually impacted. That needs to be the American story. It is when we can grieve over the, the most vulnerable, the most disenfranchised, the most excluded that we create policies with those people in mind because we've humanized them. I wish we could just go on uh, and on and on and on. But uh, let's talk about economic relief, emergency economic relief, first hundred days. What's Joe Biden got to do? And what do you expect him to talk about on the twentieth? You know, I'm not sure. I know he's, they're going to they're going to uh, increase the amount of COVID relief, so they're going to go past the two thousand dollars, right? So people have received some people have received their six hundred dollars. Another another fourteen hundred will make its way. That's not sufficient. Uh, he needs a you know we we want to just say this up front that. Uh, the kind of economic pain that this country is experiencing right now, the fact that you have folk in food lines, the food banks are overtaxed and the like, is all a result of a choice. We've chosen this misery. Because when you look at Europe and what Europe has done, you don't see this kind of dislocation. You don't see this kind of, of, of social misery. So uh, we're choosing this. We're choosing not to support workers. We're choosing not to keep them in, employed. We're choosing not to, to ensure that folks have the means to, to keep a roof over their heads and put food on the table. So I want to make clear that that's a policy decision. And it's not just something that's just happening. It's a policy decision that is resulting in, in these outcomes. So I think the first thing he's going to do is try to give us, try to give everyday ordinary folk two, two grand. And we know that's not sufficient. He's going to try to expand PPP. He's going to try to expand some of the uh, act on some of the uh, uh, the provisions that were in the trillion dollar, the trillion plus dollar package that the House sent over to the Senate. But I think he also has to, you know, just I think he should just embrace the fourteen point plan of the Poor People's Campaign with Reverend Barber and Reverend Theo Harris. Right. I think that plan is a plan for the most vulnerable, ranging from you know raising the minimum wage to $15, to enacting a federal jobs program, to guarantee quality education. We know what there's, there's an agenda out there, uh, but we'll see whether or not he has the courage to actually respond to the scale of the problems. That's the, that's the question. He knows he has the answers available to him, Brother Jim. Mm -hmm. The question is, does he have the courage or the will? Because let's be very clear, COVID aside, the problems we face as a country they're not just the result of the Republican Party now. 
I'm a public health physician, so I frequently talk about the majority of, of what impacts your health and your well-being are things that are outside of the purely clinical realm. And they're definitely things outside of a hospital setting. Um, if, if we use the pandemic as a lens, people experience disproportionate outcomes because of the pandemic, because of their risk of exposure and their risk of vulnerability. And risk of exposure and risk of vulnerability is definitely tied to those things like where you work, what type of job you work, um, where you live, what type of housing do you live in, what are the environment con environmental conditions uh, that you live in. Uh, look, you know, we talked a lot about pre-existing conditions. I'll go back to my father. My father was also a man who lived through HIV AIDS, right? And so Oftentimes, I've been on panels with people where we scapegoat um, those who have died um, as this battle of survival of the fittest. And somehow they were just weaker because they had all of these pre-existing conditions, right? All of these things that were weighing them down. But hypertension is a political diagnosis. Oh, you better, you better talk. I remember. I ever read that, like hypertension is a political diagnosis. And I was like, what are you talking about? Hypertension is a political diagnosis because people don't just wake up with hypertension. Hypertension has so many factors. It's a factor of nutrition. And we could talk about food swamps versus food deserts. Food deserts, a lack of access to healthy and nutritious foods. Swamps are overproliferation of fast food and other things. Um, we, could, we could talk about the air that people breathe. Uh, we could talk about physical activity. Do you live in a safe environment? Um, we could talk about racism and, and the toxic stress um, that is associated with racism and other isms. Hypertension is a political diagnosis. So the fact that people had so many pre-existing conditions, those pre-existing conditions were rooted in those social determinants of health, which forces like policy politics um, and economic forces have the power to influence. So this is why I say that whenever the incoming administration, whenever President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris, whenever they talk about solving, they must solve for racial equity and they must solve for racial justice. And I use that specifically as a lens because it is going to allow us to touch on all those different determinants. Uh, those structural determinants that I spoke about. You start solving for that stuff, you don't see black and brown people dying from coronavirus at the rate that they did. Okay? My cousin, who was a postal worker, think about it, that essential worker, it was in a role um, that he had to keep going to work. You know, bless, bless my cousin Frankie Boswell, Thomas Frankie Boswell. My sister, who was a breast cancer survivor, worked in a large retail chain store. So she was working on the front line because she's economically vulnerable and had to keep going to work, though she had just recovered from uh, breast cancer. Right. At times when we didn't have significant PPE. So it goes back to what the professor was saying. If you think about why people end up or land in the jobs or have access to the jobs that they have access to, you can begin to understand why you see the devastation of coronavirus. So you got to solve way upstream and whether or not you have the will to solve upstream is going to say something about not just the soul of this nation, but the morality of the nation and the moral courage of those leading it. And that's why we call this program Everything's Political. You just proved my point, sister, one more time. <laughs> I want to just close with this one more little observation. We talk about an epidemic of grief. Well, that goes beyond grieving for who you've lost. But once this moratorium on evictions is over, once 
people realize that that job is not coming back. So what is going to be the response from the community when we see some of these tepid kind of responses coming out from the administration, from Congress, from the president? What's our role going to be? You know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. And I'm going to come at your question by way of what happened in Georgia. Right. So, you know, look, I'm excited about Warnock and I'm excited about Ossoff and the way in which they've helped us flip the, the Senate. We finally got I want to see the back of Mitch McConnell's head at some point. Right. But, you know, politicians inevitably disappoint. Let's just be clear. What's more interesting to me is how they got elected. Thinking about not just simply Stacey Abrams in fair fight, but I'm thinking about Project South. I'm thinking about Black Voters Matter. I'm thinking about the People's Alliance, the New Vote of Georgia, Insay Foot. I mean, I can just Helen Butler, a whole bunch of folk just doing grassroots work. And what we saw was the the kind of the demographic shifts that that we knew were happening in Georgia made themselves known and organizing. You know, those black rural voters. We found out that the rural America ain't just white turning out in massive numbers. So what will be our response to tepid policy initiatives by the Biden administration, I hope, will be a massive mobilization that is a result of organizing across the country, that we don't get caught up in the fact that we've elected Biden and Harris. We don't want to trade one fantasy for another. Been there, done that. Went through that with, for 2008 to 2006. Been there, done that. So we don't want to get caught up in that. But I do want us to say this. We're going to face a challenge. Okay, now here, I'm going to be a little controversial on your show. When, they, when they're tepid and they deploy Vice President Kamala Harris to quiet us, the question is, what you going to do? Mm. How are you going to respond? Right? That's the challenge, you see. So we're going to see how representation across the Biden administration will be deployed in order to kind of keep us in line, to discipline us, right? But we need to understand that the election of Biden and Harris was a means to an end. The end is a more just America. If they get in the way of that, we got to bring critique to bear. Organizing, our response must be the result of organizations across the country, people who are fighting for a fair wage, livable wage, people who are fighting for guaranteed health care across for every American, people who are fighting for substantive public education, folk who are doing that work on the ground, continue to mobilize and organize so that when the Biden administration engages in this, this oatmeal man politics that's typical of the Democratic Party, we're ready and able to respond in an organized way, not just simply by... Um, how shall we say, by, by expressing rage. See, let me say this really quickly, really quickly. I'm tired of us responding to the police killing one of us and then demanding for reform. I don't want to wait for them to mess up and kill one of us for us to then get in the streets. We need to be organizing like we are. Defund the police didn't just emerge out of nowhere. It came out of grassroots organizing. So we need to be organizing now to push the Biden-Harris administration to do right, not just simply by us, but, but do right by an idea of a more just America. That's my response. I was going to add to that. I hope we have resurrected the Fannie Lou Hamer in each of us as a community. 
Mm. And, and uh, you know, that I'm sick and tired and my sick and tired means I'm going to act. And my sick and tired of this means that the pressure is going to remain. We have to have pressure because I'm going to go back to what I said in the beginning. Otherwise, we'll be stuck on the pendulum of progress. And progress is easily fed by symbolism. Um, and so if we are to arrive at transformation and to become a just America, we got to stay with our hands dirty. And you stay with your hands dirty by staying in the streets. And what I mean by staying in the streets, you stay organizing. You stay organizing around policy. You stay organizing around votes. Um, you don't wait for an election to register voters. You do what they did in Georgia was successful because they, they were doing for some time. They had put in the work consistently, right? And so what I'm hopeful is that you see an awakening of this beautiful coalition, this diverse coalition of folks who are, are sick and tired and fed up of the status quo and are ready and able to demand and place pressure on power, right? Because again, I'll say the same thing, power concedes nothing without a demand. So we just can't be drunk off of the symbolism in power. We have to be hungry and only be satiated by the by the results, by the impacts of power and recognize our own power. So we can't go back into our shells. We can't afford that because if we do go back into our shells, all that we have to look forward to is the pendulum and the pendulum will swing forward. But oh, that pendulum will swing back again. I want to break the pendulum. Hello. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> yes. I am so, so happy that. Uh... Dr. Eddie and Dr. Chris are here with me today. If you look at CNN, if you look at MSNBC, you're going to see these folks. I ain't playing. I got some star power in here today. But the kind of star power that tells us scientifically and specifically with love, with all the, the heartfelt emotion that needs to go into this, why we need to do what we do best. When we are organized, that's when America is at its best. So let's move forward. Thank you again. And just remember that everything is political. Next time, we're going to switch gears on you. And I'm going to be coming at you from another direction. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk about the appropriation of culture, how folks like what we do, but don't necessarily like who we are. I thought we were going to be able to segue right into the Grammys, but they postponed the Grammys, so we may give you a little feeder. We may give you a uh, Black Music 101 to get you ready for the Grammys. <laughs> That's what I think we're going to do. We're going to, get, we're going to have some folks in here to talk about what they think to expect from the Grammys. And then we're going to look at what they actually did. So please stay tuned. Thank you both again. And as I often like to say, when you don't see me, a black man's work is never done. Bye-bye. Mm.